in the third chapter this morning. James chapter 3. Last week, we studied James chapter 3 and talked about the power of the tongue to do three things. The power of the tongue, verse 1 through 4, to direct. The power of the tongue to destroy, verse 5 through 8. And then the power of the tongue to delight. And we talked about the fact that the tongue is a very powerful force. You can do way more damage or blessing using your tongue many times than you can do with your physical body. The things that you say have a way of sticking in people's minds, good and blessing or bad and cursing. I'm not talking about using curse words. I'm talking about removing value from someone's life by the way that you speak to them. And you'll, if you have ever been spoken to in a way where you've been talked down to or spoken to in a way where you're feeling like you're less than human or even talked to by somebody that you respect in a way that's disrespectful, it sticks with you for a long time. It just does. It has a way of imprinting itself. The power of the spoken word is pretty powerful. It, the power of the spoken word is pretty powerful. That's, that's profound right there. Uh, came up with that on my own, you know. I'm a product of Farmington schools, just so you know. I'm not a, not a sponsor. So that said, the tongue we talked about also is guided by the heart. So since the tongue is guided by the heart, we talked about last time how it's so important that we pray and say, Lord, would you keep my heart with all diligence? Would you search my heart and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness? We have dirty hearts and that is, that's shown by the fact that dirtiness comes out of our mouths. And Jesus said, it's not those things that come from without that defile us. It's actually the things that proceed from our mouths. They come from our heart, and that's what defiles a man. And so he says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of your heart proceed the issues of life. It, it taints everything. And so we need wisdom. So as we continue talking about the power of the tongue, we, we need to have our tongues guided by wisdom. And so in James chapter 1, verse 2 through 8, James has already spoken to us about this. He says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. He says, But let have patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, the, ideal, the idea there is you may be whole. You know, you ever heard somebody say that you have a God-shaped hole in you from birth and it needs to be filled so you can be complete? That's the idea here. He's producing patience. He says, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then he says, if any of you lacks wisdom then you're in trouble. No, he doesn't say that. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. How many of us seek wisdom? I think most of us do. But, and, and I say that because Google is still a business this many years later. We're seeking information. But there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. And uh, <laughs> I have there for you, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. We can all prove that. We can say that. But wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. It's wise to not do that. Now, some of you are going, no, I love tomatoes. Put them in everything. And some of you eat them like apples. 
<laughs> I can't do it. I, I like tomatoes, but put them on a cheeseburger with bacon. You know, it's a nice side. It's not a main course for me. But the idea is, is that wisdom is the ability to take the knowledge that we receive and correctly apply it. And one example of that is uh, everyone sees fossils, right? If you go and dig in a fossil site and you find fossils, the atheist will come up with a conclusion, right? And the person that knows God will come up with a conclusion, not everything in a fossil is self-evident. You have to have some presuppositions or pre-ideas when you look at that fossil to figure out and determine what to do with that information. And that's the difference between evolution and creationism. You look at the two and you see two totally different conclusions drawn from seeing the exact same thing. So wisdom is the primary key. And so Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19 says, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. He didn't just take a bunch of information and download it into creation, but he instead used wisdom to make it. And so with wisdom, he created everything. But if you take some time a little bit later and look at Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22 through 31, it says there, that wisdom was with God before time and creation. And we're just going to turn there because I was just, I saw this passage this last week and thought, man, how powerful is that? It doesn't tell us what wisdom is, just tells us its origins. If I can get there, I didn't mark that page. I wasn't ready for Bible drill this morning. I guess I should be ready for that. Pastor, slow it, turn the pages. Proverbs chapter 8. Come on, you guys can beat me there. I'm making it easy. It says this in verse 22, The Lord possessed me. It's personified here. He's talking about wisdom. He says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters would not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. And so God rejoices in wisdom. He uses wisdom to create not only the heavens and the earth, but you. How many times have you discounted, without even realizing it, that God used wisdom in making you because he has specific purposes for you? Did you know that he used wisdom in giving you your strengths and your skills and your talents? Did you know that he used wisdom in making you weak in areas that drive you nuts? Did you know that he used wisdom for that? There's value in weakness. 
There's value in things that you can't do because because you can't do those things, you can do other things. And so wisdom was used in creation. So we need wisdom so that we can be like our creator. So how do we know who has wisdom? So James talks about this and he starts in verse 13. But before we read verse 13 in chapter 3, I want to point out verse 1 in chapter 3 again. He says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. So not everyone's called to be a teacher, but those that would receive that calling and respond to it and live it out, we have to recognize that there's a greater judgment for those who speak more words. Every idle word will be judged by the Lord. And so as as a responder to that calling personally, I am more accountable because of who I get to speak to. But the cool thing about this is he's telling them not everybody's supposed to be a teacher. So some of you in the church, and he's writing to this early church, he says some of you are trying to take that calling upon yourself. He basically says you need to count the cost of that. Are you really called or are you aspiring to be something God's not called you to be? Because if you're not supposed to be that, then just play your role, run in your lane. But then he speaks to the church moving forward in verse 13, and he says to the church, who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among you? I read this verse, and I have for the last 12 years, and kind of went over that qualifier. The statement doesn't say, who is wise and understanding? God doesn't call us to discern who's wise and understanding in the whole world. We can't. We don't have that ability to take in every person. But he says, we need to pay attention to who is wise and understanding among us. We need to pay attention to one another. We need to see those that claim to be something that maybe they're not. We have the internet, right? Who do you allow to teach you? Who do you allow to speak into your life wisdom? Who do you receive wisdom from and live it out? Because the reality is, not everybody that's speaking into our lives has God's wisdom. He's going to contrast wisdom from God versus wisdom from Satan, essentially. Fleshly, worldly wisdom versus godly, heavenly wisdom. And so, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, kind of at the end of the verse, Jesus said this, Wisdom is proven by all her children. See, there again, wisdom is personified as if it's a person. And he says that wisdom produces children. Fruit from a tree, children from our lives, wisdom produces a result. And that result is, it it proves where the wisdom comes from. And so a person's life proves him wise or unwise based on his conduct. And so there are two types of wisdom he talks about here. He says there, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So anybody that claims to be wise, he says, "Uh, that's fine, they can say that, but I want you to pay attention to the way that they live because the way that they live will prove what they really believe, what they really know about God. He says, let him show by good conduct. Conduct is the way that we carry ourselves. It's the way that we live out our lives. But he says that, let him prove, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. 
What's meekness? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. We talked about it last week even. We talked about the bridle and the bit that goes in the mouth of a horse. And so when you take this bridle and this bit, you're basically putting that animal, that beast, under your control. So if the beast is supposed to be under control, the bit or the bridle, we in the same way, meekness is the idea. Meekness is not weakness, but it's power under control. And so meekness is being willing to yield to the greater power. In this case, it's yielding to the power of God to control our tongues and to lead the way that we conduct our lives. So anybody that says that they're wise or understanding has to prove it, not just by their words, but how they live, being willing to live under the, the power of, under control of wisdom. He says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit, fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so he talks about two types of wisdom, and they can be described very easily in this passage. It's like James's cheat sheet telling the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. He says the wisdom of the world is all rooted in bitterness and envy in the heart. Bitterness begets bitterness, and a root of bitterness will affect everything, every fruit that's produced from the tree. He says that worldly wisdom can be described as self-seeking, self-seeking, selfishness, and it can be described as earthly, sensual, or I have there for you, fleshly, and demonic. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, God's, uh, uh, John writes there, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but they're of the world. And he says, If any man loves the world, the love of the Father does not abide in him. And so if our lives, if our lives are guided by earthly, sensual, fleshly wisdom, it's actually demonic. That there's a demonic oppression, there's a demonic chain that creates the lifestyle that's lived from that wisdom. But then he doesn't stop with telling us what's wrong. He says that heavenly wisdom, instead of being bitter with envy, guided by envy and self-seeking, he says heavenly wisdom is pure. It's first pure. Starts with purity. Starts with a life that's confessed its sin, his or her sin, asked the Lord to cleanse them, begins with a relationship of the purifier, Jesus. And then from that comes this river of living water. Look at all these descriptors here. It's all describing the fruit of the Spirit flowing out of a life under the surrender of Christ as Lord. He says, heavenly wisdom is pure, peaceable, willing to yield. 
Pull up to a stop sign and see who's willing to yield. You know, and we all see that daily, right? Who's willing to let someone else go first? It's not the way our world works. We want to go first. I get it. We got somewhere to be. He says, merciful, impartial, and without hypocrisy. What's hypocrisy? It's a term for an actor to play the part. We wear masks. We know what we're supposed to be, so we put on a mask and we play the part. But hypocrisy is playing the part, but inwardly not really being that. Any actor can tell you that. They're playing many times roles of people that they're not. As a matter of fact, they say that the best actors in Hollywood are the ones that really don't have any beliefs or any inward convictions because they'll play any role and they'll get any role that they want. They're just kind of a piece of blank clay waiting to be molded. And many of them don't even have their own personality traits because they're too busy learning others. But the idea is hypocrisy is saying this, do as I say, not as I do. And that creates bitterness in the lives of those you're trying to teach things to. Trust me, I know this. When someone tells me, do as I say, not as I do, and I respect them, I start to respect them less because their lives aren't proving out that they actually believe the thing they're telling me to do. And so it's without hypocrisy. And look at this also, heavenly wisdom produces good fruit. Good fruit that God calls good, not us. So I have for you some examples of wisdom. We won't go through all of these. But there are many scenarios where we can put through the grid of wisdom of the world versus heavenly wisdom. And the reality is the wisdom of the world will create divisiveness. It will create backbiting. It will create tailbearing. Uh, worldly wisdom does not make for peace. It makes for war. And we live in a world right now. We can look around, read the headlines. What's going on? Is it world peace? Why not? They sang about it in the 80s. They, they wanted peace, right? How come it hasn't come? Because Jesus is the only one that can bring true peace. He's the only one that can unify people that have nothing in common. And so I have there for you the first example, and really there's so many more. Uh, Cain and Abel is a, an example of a Cain and Abel both offered a sacrifice. And because Cain was full of bitter envy in his heart, he was self-seeking. He wasn't doing what God said, but he was doing, here, I'm going to offer you what I got. God said, don't you know that Satan is crouching at your door? He, he wants to, to sift you just like he did to Peter. But earthly, sensual, and fleshly wisdom is what guided Cain's offering. Instead of submitting to what God said, this is what you can offer, he said, but these are the works that I have for you. Take them or leave them. He accepted Abel's and not Cain's. And what happened? <laughs> he killed Abel. And, and we have there, uh, we don't have a whole lot on Abel other than he offered the right sacrifice and it went well for him, right? Well, it did between him and God, but not between him and, Abel, and, him and Cain. He, he outed him. He offed him. He voted him off the island. He killed him. And his blood cried out from the ground for justice. So the Tower of Babel is in Genesis chapter 11. We'll read a few verses about it. But after the flood, mankind, restarting through the family of Noah, 
And in Genesis chapter 11, things have progressed. Man has multiplied over the face of the earth once again. They all, at this point, are still speaking one language. And in Genesis 11, it says, The whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, they had asphalt for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves again, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to come together under a banner of unity. But who were they building this city for? Themselves. They were self-seeking in their hearts, even though they were doing it as a group. And they wanted to make a name for themselves. And so they were self-seeking in every possible way. And I would submit to you that they were building this, this building so that they would not be overtaken once again by a flood. Notice that they cover the building. As you read further in the story, they build it out of brick and then they cover it in pitch, which is the exact same word that they used to cover the ship that Noah made. It was covered inside and out with pitch. And that was to keep it afloat. That was to keep, make it waterproof, if you will. It's like tar that we put on our roof. Roof, roofs, roofs, roof, roof, roof. <laughs> Sorry, sometimes I hear a word and I'm like, is that how you say it? Squirrel. So we have the Tower of Babel and what we find out is because they were self-seeking in every possible way of the term, um, what God said, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, verse six, indeed the people are one, And they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Then he says, come, let us, that's the word Elohim that we see in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image, let us, he's making decisions within the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he says, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered from them abroad over the face of all the earth. So their desire was to keep unified, to not be scattered. And because they were self-seeking in that, God wouldn't honor it and the result of their self-seeking and their desire to protect themselves was confusion. And in James, we just read that where self-seeking exists, that confusion is there and every evil thing. So their desire was to stay together and they got scattered. And the reality is, one of the other things that they were doing is they were making a tower unto the heavens. And many believe that this was actually like the song, Stairway to Heaven, you know, I won't sing it. My voice isn't there, otherwise I'd go for it this morning. But I won't do that. But the reality is, that's not what this is about. They're not trying to make a stairway to heaven. What they're actually trying to do is they're making a worship center unto the heavens. 
they started worshiping the stars. And many believe this is where actually the, the idea of the horoscope came about, that we can find out what our future is based on the stars. And it's just a perversion. Because if you read any ancient text about the stars and the, the different, you know, the Orion's belt and the, the Virgin, Virgo, and then uh, Sagittarius and all of those, what we find is actually if we take away all the pagan ideas, God has actually written the gospel in the stars. And there are books on it. And if you're interested, if you're that type that wants to read into it, and you kind of like, I don't think so. I'll, I got a book I'll recommend to you. It's great. So my point is, and I've gone way more into this than I planned, is that when envy and self-seeking are in the heart and earthly and demonic and sensual thinking, that's the world's wisdom and it causes division, causes confusion. Abraham and Lot are the same way in Genesis chapter 13. Abraham and Lot had already left Ur of the Chaldees. And they're, they're there in the plain. They're between Sodom and Gomorrah and the plains of Canaan. And what happened is they had grown so well, their, their flocks were multiplying, and uh, the men of Lot and Abram started to fight one another. And so Abram is an example of heavenly wisdom that is pure, peaceable, yielding, merciful, without hypocrisy or impartiality, produces good fruit. That example is Abraham, because if you look at Abraham in this example in Genesis 13, what we find out is that he goes to Lot and he says, you know, our men are fighting. Uh, You choose which way you're going to go. We can divide. That's fine. Because Lot goes, hey, we need to part ways because our men are fighting. We've become too big for our britches. We can't get along, so let's divide. And Abram doesn't say, no, we can't do that. He says, okay, sounds good. You pick what you want. Do you want the fertile plains down by the river, by Sodom? Or do you want this higher ground up here? He gives him the choice. Now, Abram's the elder. He could have easily said, okay, well, I'm going over here and you can have that. But he didn't. He said, which one do you want, Lot? I don't know about you guys, but that's not how I am normally. He was peaceable. He was willing to yield. And what we find out is his willingness to give up the better ground, because Lot's not going to pick the worst ground. He's going to pick the best stuff. It ended up being a blessing because he picked the better ground, but he picked a place that was closer to a sinful place. He started pitching his tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah. We all know how that went. He ends up living in the city. He ends up being a leader of the city. He loses all that he owns. And he actually is like him and his daughters are the only ones that make it out of Sodom at the time of its judgment. And they produce two ungodly nations. They were influenced by the world. And yet Abram remained set apart from the world. And he ends up still obtaining the promise of God. And so there's another example. First Samuel chapter 24, we have Saul and David. Saul's been chasing David. Saul's the first king of Israel. And he has been given this position by God, and he disobeys the Lord over and over and over, even though the prophets told him what God intended. And finally, the Lord takes his hand off of Saul and says he's going to pick another king. And he uses the prophet Samuel to go find out this little runt, this little sheep herder, that we know by now by the King, king David. Uh, but what happens is that David is this young runt of a kid. He's the youngest of his brothers. And he ends up, by God's providence, becoming the, 
the worship leader in Saul's court. He plays music. But he also becomes a general in Saul's army. And so Saul knows that the blessing of the Lord is off of him, but he knows that David is, because of his ruddiness, because of his uh, ability to be a master war man, the hand of the Lord is on him. He makes him a general, and he, the song of the day, the top 40, becomes Saul has slayed his hundreds or thousands, thousands, and, and David has slayed his tens of thousands. So like he was, he was pretty popular in the day. Can you imagine being the king, and they're like, yeah, our king's great, but look at his general. He's awesome. All of a sudden, he's more popular than the king. And he is actually, militarily, very successful. He goes out and wages war, and he takes things over. And, and so this is good for Saul's kingdom, but Saul sees the writing on the wall. This, this young man, is a, he's an up-and-comer. He's a rookie, but he's going to take over my throne. And so Saul, being envious over David's successes, starts to hate him and be bitter. And he starts to eventually notice that David has a friendship with his son, Jonathan, and Jonathan's starting to take David's side. And this makes Saul even more bitter and envious. And so uh, David kind of picks up on things. He's not dumb. He realizes, uh, I probably need to get out of here because he doesn't care so much for me. He's going to kill me. And so David takes off on the run. He doesn't mean to, but there's a bunch of guys that are really, really uh, into following David. They like David. They've warred with him. They trust him. And so they go with him. This band of unlikely guys, they follow with him. And what we find out is after, gosh, I can't remember how many years, he is chased by Saul. Saul's taking his armies, and instead of going out and defeating the armies of the Lord that are against the Lord, he's actually pursuing David, who is actually anointed to be king at this point, and trying to kill him. And we get this 1 Samuel chapter 24, and they go into this cave, and Saul is like everybody else. He's got to go potty. So he goes into this cave, and David's men happen to be camped really close to where Saul and his army come in to use the restroom. And so he goes into this cave, kind of like a convenience store bathroom. He goes and gets the key, goes in. He doesn't touch the toilet seat, you know, all the stuff you got to do. He goes in there to use the restroom. It's a huge cave. And David is in this cave already and all of his men. And so when Saul comes in, all of his men are looking at David going, hey, God's brought your enemy into your hand. This is the opportunity. Kill him. We can be done with running. You can take over the throne. And David says, I will not put my hand on the Lord's anointed. But he does do something. He takes his knife and he cuts the hem of his garment off. And then later, when Saul goes back out, he, he kind of communicates with him, I guess across a valley or something. He says, hey, Saul, we're over here and we could have killed you, but we didn't. You keep pursuing me because you think I'm trying to kill you. You've told all your guys I'm trying to kill you, but I had the opportunity. My men were telling me to kill you, and I did not because I will not lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. But then later he was convicted that he even cut his robe. He was convicted about that. His wisdom was not from here. It was heavenly wisdom. He says, I will not put my hand on the Lord's anointed. I trust that God is in control. If he wants to put me on that throne, he's anointed me. He'll make it possible. 
And so what we find out is that David was like Jesus. He didn't come in and just take over. He actually came in and lived peaceably. And he was merciful. He could have killed him right there. David was not this young uh, guy that, you know, was going out with stones anymore against Goliath. He knew how to wield a sword, and he was a man of valor. And so he could have very easily taken Saul down, especially when he's using the potty, you know. So without painting any more picture about that, um, so what about, what's another example we have about godly versus worldly wisdom? Uh, Jesus. We have to go to Jesus. We see uh, Jesus deals with many different cases and just uh, John chapter 12, verse 1. We see Jesus and his dealings with the poor. John chapter 12, verse 1 says that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of this offering, this oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, John's writing after the fact, he says, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Sounds very holy, doesn't it? And then John writes in there, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had, put the, he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. And Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for me for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So we have this juxtaposition between Judas, who is really confused and full of envy and bitterness and self-seeking, and he's, he's wanting that money, but he uses a very holy-sounding reason for wanting it, and yet this woman has given this offering to Jesus and anointed his feet because she knows, and she's been loved by him, she loves him much. This bottle of spikenard could have been used as a retirement sum. This wasn't just a couple days' wages, this was like your nest egg. She had saved it up, and she could have lived off of the money she could have gotten from it, and yet she took it and she used it in a way that will never be taken from her. That's a retirement fund. That's an eternal plan. She worshiped Jesus. So Judas is this idea of demonic wisdom and worldly wisdom, and you know we see Jesus in his dealings. And then in John chapter 13, if you get a chance to read that later, he he takes, Jesus is, is feeding them, and then he, at, after supper, he takes off of his robe, and he, he actually girds himself like a slave, and he washes the feet of all the disciples, including the one who would betray him, uh, Judas Iscariot. He washes all of their feet. Now, I don't know about you, but worldly wisdom says you don't bless your enemies, you put yourself away from them. As a matter of fact, you try to seek revenge on them. Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. He was fully aware that, that there was one among them that would betray him. And yet, at the, at, at the end of his life, knowing this, he washed all of their feet. Uh, that's, that's a peacemaker. I see Jesus reaching his heart and his hands out to love Judas, 
trying to persuade him that the things that he's seeking in his life are not going to pay off in the long run. Mark chapter 3, verse 1, we see Jesus dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, says, He entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand, so they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man, who had the withered hand, step forward. Now, why were they trying to find a way to accuse Jesus? Because they were seeking their own kingdom, their own popularity. They were envious of Jesus's ministry. He was drawing people away from following them. And they weren't really about the kingdom of God. They liked having a following. They liked people praising them in the presence of others. And so, They were looking for a way to shut him up, and he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful, and he's questioning all these religious leaders, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill it? Now, he knows that they've already committed murder in their hearts because they hate him. He said on the Sermon on the Mount, you don't have to physically kill anybody to commit murder. You can commit murder in your heart before you ever do the action. They had already killed him, which leads to their actually having him killed. But what we find out here is he's asking them this question because really they're thinking about, you you can't heal, you can't do works on the Sabbath. And he says, is it lawful to do good or to do evil? Because they were accusing him of doing works on the Sabbath, and yet he was doing good works. They were committing murder on the Sabbath. Is that okay? And so he's asking them this question. Of course, they never really, I don't even think they gave it a second thought. They just were like, we hate this guy. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, Jesus was angry. He was meek and mild, but he still got angry at things that you should get angry about. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. From this point, the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So they want to partner with the world to find a way to kill this man who was healing people. He was healing people. He was giving life. He was restoring lame limbs. How many things that can you think of personally right now that if, if Jesus would just heal it, you'd be jumping for joy? Can you imagine if the thing that ails you, the thing that bothers you the most, maybe somebody else that you know that has a, an ailment that keeps them from being able to live as fully as they'd like to, and you're just like, if just with a, just a touch, they could be healed. Can you imagine if you saw that man being healed when he, for his whole life, not had a withered hand or had a withered hand, and then it's restored whole? I mean, that, that's a celebration right there. He didn't even have any doctor's fees, no EOBs, no insurance copays. It's the best healing ever. And they're mad because they, they didn't care about anybody but themselves. Selfishness. So I have more examples for you there, but I think you get the point. Jesus has this godly wisdom, this wisdom that descends from heaven, and it brings peace to the earth. But the wisdom of the world seeks to divide and cause divisiveness. Now, not all godly wisdom brings peace. 
Jesus said in in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, he said, don't think that I came to bring peace to the earth, but I came to bring division. Well, wait a minute, doesn't that contradict? He's dividing between what is holy and what is not. He's making division where division should be made. He's cutting cancer out of the body. And, And in this example where James is telling us how to tell the difference between worldly and uh, godly wisdom, he's seeking unity in the church. And sometimes for unity in the church, there needs to be a limb cut off. There needs to be sin removed from the group. There needs to be false teachers taken out that are only thinking about their own gain versus building the kingdom of God. And so he is very strong in this teaching. So verse 18, he says, though, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Blessed are those who make peace, because they shall be called the sons and the daughters of God. Now, peace sometimes comes at the expense of war, but Jesus paid the ultimate price. He went to war to make peace with us between God and himself. And so here's my question for you as we close. Have you run the sources that you go to for wisdom through this grid, James's cheat sheet between godly and worldly wisdom? Where do you go for wisdom? We all do. We all got the Googles. We all got people that we ask questions. We all got people that we seek wisdom from. Do you seek wisdom from God, people that give you godly wisdom, heavenly wisdom, or do you seek wisdom from the world? And you can tell where your wisdom's coming by what it produces in your life. If it produces these self-seeking evil things, just because a book is sold in a Christian bookstore does not mean that it comes from godly, heavenly wisdom. There are certain people that if you read their books, you're going to find out that it's all about you. And if you read a Christian book and it starts telling you you just need to love you and, and do all these things, and it's self-seeking, it, beware. It's demonic wisdom. Satan was all about himself. But Jesus said, if you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. If you want to gain your life, you have to lay it down and pick up your cross and follow me. And so, what well of wisdom do you frequent? The world or heaven? Are you getting the wisdom that God has for his children? In Luke chapter 11, there's a promise in verse 9 through 13. He says, we being evil as fathers, or maybe we could say parents, when our kids ask us for something, they ask us for a blessing, do we give them a scorpion? They ask us for bread, do we give them a stone? No, we don't. If we being evil give good gifts to our children, Jesus said, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is the spirit spirit of wisdom. So let's close by asking the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom. Father, thank you so much for uh, this admonition from James. There are so many examples we could cover this morning. There are so many places where we could see how you used godly people who were surrendered to you and, and they received wisdom from on high that caused there to be peaceableness and willingness to yield and gentleness and kingdom thinking. And there are so many examples like Judas and Saul and so many other examples where we can see that worldly wisdom doesn't get us what what it promises. 
Worldly wisdom promises what we want right now, and it actually ends up taking away the things that we desire the most. And so, Father, I pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us, for you to give us the Spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, who causes us to stop looking at ourselves and how we can get ahead, causes us to see that the kingdom truly is about what Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He gave up his position. He humbled himself, took on human flesh, even to the point where he came as a child, completely dependent upon his mother, to the point where he would grow and learn and teach, and teach with authority, even though it made people hate him, to the point where they brutally murdered him on the cross. And yet with wisdom, he bought and purchased our salvation, knowing that if giving up his life meant life now abundant for all those who would come to him in faith and repentance and receiving this salvation, oh, what wisdom. Lord, fill us with that wisdom. May our lives be springs, wells bubbling up over with abundant life, ready to tell the world where our life source comes from. So, Father, be glorified in us. Teach us, highlight to us the ways this week that we are really, even unbeknownst to us, using worldly wisdom to live and to make decisions and give us the faith to repent and seek new sources for wisdom and really just to seek the one source, you. So, Father, we need you in this. Open our eyes to the truth. Set us free. And uh, would you be glorified? In Jesus' name, amen.